Hi everyone, I'm Jim Cahill with another Emerson Automation Experts podcast. You may have heard the news of Emerson and Bayatech teaming up to accelerate the delivery of low carbon hydrogen, an important and growing energy carrier in the global energy mix. Bayatech specializes in localized hydrogen production as a more efficient and less expensive alternative for hydrogen supply. Today, I'm joined by Bayatech's Andrew Leadham, General Counsel and Head of Policy. We'll be discussing priorities to ensure a bright future for hydrogen as an energy carrier. Also, I want to make note that Andrew has his own podcast, Everything About Hydrogen, which you'll find to be an excellent source of learning. I listened to one of the recent episodes, Hydrogen Technology, the Engineer's Perspective, and found it to be quite informative. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here with us today. Well, let's get started by asking you to share your background and path to your current role at Bayatech. Sure. Yeah. And uh, again, I just wanted to say thank you to you and the team at Emerson for uh, having me on the show. I'm, you know, delighted to have the chance to be on this side of the of the podcast microphone. I have to say, it's a it's a change. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, really excited to be here to to speak with you guys about hydrogen and uh, where biotech fits into the evolution of the hydrogen economy. So thanks again for having me. On uh, on my side. I- I suppose uh, my path to hydrogen, as it were, is probably a bit circuitous and meandering. So I think maybe the the long and short of it is, um, you know, I'm an attorney uh, originally, and I, I started out actually in the telecom space, uh, working on IP licensing uh, and and uh, portfolio, working for a licensing company that had a portfolio of uh, of telecommunications patents, um, and that was just after law school and through a series of Various circumstances found myself returning to uh, to school to get a master's in international economics and uh, policy. And then uh, while I was there, I ended up uh, being uh, primarily interested in in energy resources and environment, uh, which is a specialty in the program I was in. And that led me eventually to take a position as a as an attorney uh, in house attorney for a energy services firm. Uh, actually based in there's in an office of theirs in Angola. Now that's sort of my path to the energy sector and then eventually ended up going to work for a renewable energy and infrastructure consulting group based out of London. Uh, and I started there focused on transportation electrification, uh, which you know of course is a hot topic in and of itself. But I joined, let's see, probably 2018, 2019. So right when I joined uh, you know, hydrogen was really hitting hitting its stride, and the electrification and the transportation world has kind of taken uh, the energy world by storm in the last couple of years. So it started to really dominate a lot of the work we were doing, focusing in the transportation sector and understanding where hydrogen fits into that that space. And that's also the time I think I would be remiss if I point out uh, everything about hydrogen. While I appreciate the credit, Jim is is not entirely my podcast. I have a uh, Two co-founders of uh, Hydrogen Media that uh, actually convinced me to join uh, join the podcast originally. Uh, this is Chris Jackson at Proteum and, and Patrick Malloy at the uh, Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. So I got involved in the podcast with them, uh, just trying to explore the hydrogen world. I wasn't entirely convinced that people would listen to it, <laughs> but 
it turns out it's been uh, been actually incredibly uh, successful, at least relative to what we had expected venture and, you know, really excited about it. So, uh, you know, at, at one point uh, while I was working at this consulting firm, I decided that, uh, you know, really wanted to return to the law, but stay in the energy sector. And one of our uh, original guests on the podcast, uh, probably the first three or four, was a gentleman by the name of Mo Vargas, who uh, was running a young hydrogen company based out of Albuquerque called Biotech. And uh, Mo had made a pretty convincing uh, case to me, uh, or, you know, made a pretty convincing case on the on his on his appearance on the podcast that uh, this was the space to be in and Biotech was the company to be at. So uh, one day I was actually uh, shopping for plants with my partner at the uh, local garden center and shot an email over to Mo uh, asking if they were, if Biotech was looking for an in-house attorney. And, uh, you know, to my surprise, I got an email back uh, before I even got home. And then I can't remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of, yes, but what will it cost me? Um, so uh, we eventually landed on a number and, uh, you know, I joined uh, Biotech uh, earlier this year. It's only been eight months ago and it's been a wild ride. When I joined Biotech, we were 27-ish employees. Uh, as of today, we're over 100 employees and planning on, on building uh, 50 of our, our hydrogen generation hub sites over the next three years across the United States and in the UK. So that's kind of a long way of telling you how I got there. What I do today, I think will be no surprise to most people who hear my title. So general counsel and head of policy. So it's a little bit of a twofold job, uh, you know, day to day. My work is you know, legal work that probably would mo bore most uh, non-lawyers to death, but which I find uh, incredibly compelling and and uh, fun to work on. And then the other half is um, looking at uh, and handling and interacting with policy at the federal and state levels, which as hydrogen grows in uh, prevalence and as part of the energy mix and the energy transition is becoming a bigger and bigger lift. So those are my two roles and uh, yeah, that's it. Well, that, that could be the most uh, fascinating background. You know, I, I, I <laughs> law school to economics and a degree there and the other things along the way and a podcaster and um, sorry not to give credit to your, your fellow uh, cohorts. No, no, I'll, in, I'll take it, Jim. I'll certainly take it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's just a really neat background. And I appreciate you sharing that. Let's get into it a little bit. So why is there so much excitement around hydrogen as an energy carrier and people so excited about everything? Yeah, I think the, the question has a potentially very long answer, uh, but again, I'll try and, uh, try and hit the highlights. I think there's the first, I think where we start here is of course that hydrogen, whether run through a fuel cell or combusted, however you want to extract the, the energy from it, emits no carbon, right? It's a zero carbon fuel source. Now, if you combust it, you, you get some NOx emissions, right? But through a fuel cell and combusted, it, it, it emits no carbon as a fuel source. So that's point one. That's why we're looking at it. It's also the, the most abundant resource in the universe. So there's a lot of it, but it does not occur naturally as a gas in nature. Um, it has to be extracted from another another medium, right? I think a huge amount of it. So, it, it, you know, the other interesting thing about hydrogen, we've talked about it on, on my podcast or our podcast in the early days. This is not a sector that has never been considered before. 
This has been around, you know, fuel cells have been around for decades. It's a technology that has been proven and tested. What's different now is the technologies around producing it and that they're reaching a, a cost point or trending towards a cost point. That means in the next few decades, or excuse me, in the next decade, for instance, and even today with sources like Biotech and other producers working in the modular distributed space, we can get some cost and affordable uh, cost reductions for affordable production, right? So in any event, the downward trend in pricing is another component of what makes it attractive today as opposed to in the past. I think it's versatility as a energy carrier uh, makes it remarkably unique. It can be generated and transported long distances and stored long-term if, if so needed, which is something that it cannot be said of electricity through transmission lines, right? It has to be used or stored in a battery or whatever other medium you want to consider, but hydrogen can be stored for quite a long time without dissipating and it can be uh, transported long distances as well. So it has a lot of, a lot of unique capabilities in that way. It is also an effective route for decarbonizing hard to electrify components and sectors and end uses. So heavy duty transport, aviation, maritime, industrial processes, manufacturing, some other more niche applications are out there, but those headline sectors are quite dramatic and amongst the largest carbon emitting sectors in the world. And in that, for instance, let's take heavy duty transportation. Batteries don't scale well when it comes to heavy duty transportation. Uh, they're a great solution for your personal passenger vehicle on a daily basis. In terms of trying to do long haul trucking in a class A truck, good luck. It's a, you know, we're talking about a six ton battery with uh, lithium ion technology. So diminishing returns as you build a bigger and bigger battery is incredibly heavy. With hydrogen, you can solve that issue because you are not, with a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, you're carrying around a lot of hydrogen and a relatively small battery. Uh, you can get longer distances, shorter refuel times. So it offers capabilities at hard to decarbonize industries that other electrification uh, solutions do not. So I think those are the headline issues. I think there's quite a bit more that's contributing to it as well but I think those are the key components. You think about um, going straight to electricity, like the wind really blows in West Texas and there's a lot of wind turbines out there, but transporting it over the great distances to the metropolitan centers, you really do lose a lot of that energy. So yeah, it is natural to look at something like hydrogen, which made a great point about it, holding that, not dissipating like a, a battery will or other ways. So can you share with us more about Bayatech and the value you bring to hydrogen consumers? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think let's, again, maybe start with the headlines here. The headline is uh, that Bayatech's goal is to become the largest distributed hydrogen company in the world. Right? We, it's, it's a, we, we take small goals here, Jim. but we are very much focused. Our central, our core tenant is focused on making hydrogen solutions easy and making sure that they are affordable, accessible, and adaptable, right? So we want to make hydrogen available to customers and off-takers where they need it, when they need it, and also at a price point 
that actually makes it attractive uh, to them, right? There are some solutions today in the hydrogen space that are great in theory, but incredibly expensive and thus not attractive to the demand side of the equation, right? And to kickstart the hydrogen economy, you need to make it a, an affordable fuel source. With Bayotech, so you need, in the last question, I was saying that one of the reasons hydrogen is of interest today is because over the coming years, we will see that cost trend, the cost decline trend play out. But here's the thing is that Bayotech is producing, you know, low cost, low carbon hydrogen today. We can do it today. We're building the hubs now. We just announced the hub in Albuquerque in partnership with New Mexico Natural Gas. We're working with uh, fantastic companies like Emerson to make this rollout of the hubs possible. And, you know, what Biotech's core technology does, we offer, you know, it's based around a, a Sandia National Labs tech that allows the proprietary technology that allows us to scale down the centralized hydrogen production facilities of the past to something that can be dropped on site and use local feedstock. So that means if it's, it is an SMR plant that takes natural gas or renewable natural gas and biogas. So whatever feedstock we can use at the local location and the community, we can drop that into or uh, use it as feedstock through the reformer and produce that hydrogen on site, which means that it's going to be cheap and accessible for our customers, right? So that's the value proposition. And also that locality allows us to use sources and feedstocks like renewable natural gas. And renewable natural gas, as you may or may not know, uh, or as listen listeners may or may not know, can produce hydrogen with a carbon intensity that is negative. You know, so electrolysis can using purely renewable energy can produce a hydrogen with a carbon intensity of zero uh, at its uh, at its limit. Using renewable natural gas allows Biotech to go carbon negative, so it's the cleanest hydrogen available today. Well, that kind of leads into my next question. You know, because that steam methane reformer technology has been around for decades and decades and has traditionally been the most common method of producing hydrogen. But the processes have really been quite large and centralized and requiring transportation to move it from point A to point B where, where it's needed. Uh, you alluded to it some with Sandia, but what's Bayatech doing to change this production method to become more efficient and less carbon producing? Yeah, and I realized I, I got ahead of myself, and you were asking about my or about Biotech's value proposition, and uh, I moved into carbon intensity. So, um, you know, let's uh, let's go down that road. Yeah, absolutely. So the proprietary technology out of Sandia National Labs is a bayonet design. That's where the name Biotech comes from, and what it does is it allows us to scale down what you referred to, the centralized steam methane reformation production facilities, uh, hydrogen production facilities of the past are huge, absolutely massive. So, you know, a reformer could be uh, as tall as eight stories. It could be a massive uh, piece of infrastructure. Our technology allows us to scale down that production plant to something that fits effectively uh, we have one, we have a, a testing site, an R&D site 
at our headquarters in Albuquerque, just behind the building from the street. You can't even see it really. It fits on site, so it can be dropped next to a, a dispensing or a fueling location or right at an industrial off-take point. But what that reduction in scale allows us to do is produce hydrogen much more efficiently. We can recycle some of the traditionally lost energy that uh, large-scale plants uh, suffer from in the when uh, going through the reformation process because we don't have so much of the heat loss that comes with a large plant. It's compact, so we don't have to deal with that problem. So from from Jump Street, we have a more efficient process. So that brings down our carbon intensity at the start. Now we can, because we are at a, an on-site and modular solution, and because it's small scale, we can also pair. So if we are at a site that's using natural gas, just standard natural gas from, from the grid, we can pair our solution with carbon capture technologies as well. And it can be done at a, at a lower, at a smaller scale, which eliminates some of the challenges that we've seen with deploying carbon capture at a larger scale in terms of cost. So that's one solution, but there's a huge value proposition that we, we are looking at and that we think is one of the best pathways. I alluded to it earlier, as you mentioned, and that's using biogas or RNG feedstocks. And that comes from waste sources such as uh, wastewater treatment facility, landfill gas, dairy gas, uh, whatever that waste source is. You know, where, where there are CCO likes to say, where there are humans, there is waste. And where there's waste, there's a source of biogas, right? So we can take that biogas, which would traditionally be emitted as methane, uh, which is 83 times worse for the environment. And we can feed that into the reformer excuse me, 83 times worse for the environment than, uh, than just CO2 emissions. And we can feed that into our reformers and we can generate, as I mentioned earlier, carbon negative hydrogen, which is, again, the cleanest you can go. And the more biogas we use, so at 100% blend, we can go very carbon negative, or we can blend it to get just the carbon zero with the, or, you know, a CI score of just zero, uh, with the with the traditional natural gas as well. So depending on what's available at the site, we can go anywhere from zero to negative. Uh, thinking of it in in uh, grams of CO2 per megajoule, so negative 200 grams CO2 per megajoule, which is maybe not the traditional way of thinking about. It, but the point is that we can go negative. So that is one of the things that that's the value proposition that the biotech offers in that space. I think one of the thing that we don't talk about that much, but should talk about is that hydrogen generated from any source, whether it be SMR, whether it be from electrolysis, but hydrogen generated from any source run through a fuel cell is immediately going to have 40% reduction in carbon emissions compared to gasoline in the same end use application. So just from, just from the start, Hydrogen is a superior, vastly superior energy source or fuel when compared to gasoline or diesel in terms of uh, carbon emissions. Well, that sounds like a whole bunch of different ways from that energy efficiency gain because of your scale to just a lot of the others. And even from the big plants that have to transport it from point A to point B and the biogas, the biomethane, that kind of thing you're using. So it sounds like there's a lot of 
interesting things you're doing that that by scaling it down that way able to take advantage i want to switch and and pick on that head of policy side of you and and maybe you could give our listeners um, some of the recent developments going on here in the U.S. with uh, the current administration in Washington D.C. as it pertains to hydrogen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and before I do that, Jim, uh, you know, I would be remiss, uh, and I'm sure our uh, our CEO would would uh, berate me if he knew that I had missed the transportation element of the uh, equation that you just mentioned. Yes, by being able to deploy the, our units uh, locally, we can eliminate one of the additional sources of emissions associated with, with traditional hydrogen production, which is that it has to be transported long distances, and that can, you know, that results in huge amounts of emissions as well. So we do it locally, we do it high pressure, and we can, there's another pathway that we use to eliminate emissions and the hydrogen production and distribution chain. So. To your question on policy, uh, yeah, the administration has had a recent, very recent announcement around their efforts to uh, supplement the the uh, initiatives that have been put through via the bipartisan infrastructure deal uh, quite recently. Um, so the the administration itself is looking at a number of initiatives focusing on decarbonizing federal government operations, right? So. This program that the White House announced, uh, you know, includes kind of high-level tenants around 100% carbon-free electricity by 2030. Uh, you know, at least half of which will be locally supplied clean energy. It also includes 100% zero-emission vehicle acquisitions by 2035, uh, including 100% zero-emission light-duty vehicle acquisitions by 2027. So you know, this is talking about obviously in terms of uh, government fleet procurement. So they're looking to only purchasing zero emission vehicles by 2035, uh, which is a pretty ambitious goal. And I think uh, you know net zero. There's the next uh, tenant that uh, that is in that plan is net zero emissions from federal federal procurement no later than 2050, and also net zero buildings portfolio by 2045. So they have a huge number of high level. Uh, goals that they want to meet through this initiative. And again, it's, I think, to build and supplement on the uh, incentives and programs that are built into the bipartisan infrastructure deal. And I assume they are uh, looking towards the passage of the Build Back Better Act, which includes as additional packages of incentives around clean energy and specifically hydrogen. And I think we may touch on that later. So that's the high level and, and the headline items in the uh, in the announcement, and I think it, it shows a, an, a commitment by the uh, by the administration to, to the decarbonization goals, and I think it's uh, a step in the right direction. So, so why are the government policies and programs necessary to support the scale up of hydrogen, and what are their overarching goals using these tools they have at their disposal? Yeah, so you know, again, hydrogen. Any this is the energy sector, Jim. So. <laughs> This is we are we're turning, you know, this is like steering an aircraft carrier. So the transition in, for instance, the transportation sector, you know, all of these different components of what we look at as the overall energy economy, there's entrenched infrastructure and entrenched commitments to the traditional hydrogen, or excuse me, 
fossil fuel industry. And the fact of the matter is that moving away from that, that old infrastructure and that old energy economy requires first movers and first movers with some amount of, and first movers with buying power, well, and frankly, legal power to do some, uh, to make mandates and to incentivize that transition. So I think the government realizes that it has to be, and it does serve the purpose of demonstrating the viability of a lot of these technologies, right? It's always helpful to see clean buses running on batteries or fuel cells deployed in cities. It allows people to become familiar with them. But then it also, I think beyond that, is uh, just very important that there are incentives to invest in clean energy technologies. You know, these are some of the ways that we got to solar and wind uh, resources that were so expensive previously and which are now you know, the most affordable source of, of, of electricity in the world. So I think it's important that government be involved. It's certainly not the only lever. Private sector and private markets need to pick up the slack and push and companies, uh, companies like Biotech and Emerson and those that are doing their part to help that transition along and, and make these technologies and these fuel sources available and affordable uh, to consumers and, and clients today, I think are uh, the next uh, most important and are the, are the key component of the equation. And I think this, the government is allowing and, and supporting that transition. Yeah, and it seems like anytime you're introducing whatever that technology and it's on that economic curve where it, it does need in some cases, especially like you said, as massive as the total energy consumption of the planet, you know, some kickstart to get some of those going. So you had mentioned the infrastructure build. Beyond the uh, the government agencies and what they're doing, is there anything else in there specific to developing hydrogen? Yeah, yeah. So I think the uh, yeah the important thing to note around the answer for the for the administration's announcement is that they are clean energy and clean transportation. They're not specific to hydrogen. So hydrogen will be a huge component. It has applications in in what the White House has announced but it's not the specific solution that they're looking at. It's just, a, it's a component and that's important to note. On the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, there is hydrogen specific incentivization and programs there. I think $9.5 billion worth of it. The big ones are the Clean Hydrogen Research and Development Program, uh, which reestablishes and expands the scope of DOE's Hydrogen Research and Development Program. Uh, there's the Regional Clean Hydrogen Hubs Act, which allocates $8 billion between 2022 and 2026 for the deployment and investment in four regional hydrogen hubs throughout the country. And uh, I think that's, that's a huge headline grabber. It's one that certainly we as a company are looking at, and, and I think everyone in the hydrogen space is really following that one with tremendous interest. The Clean Hydrogen Manufacturing and Recycling Initiative, which is uh, you know another $500 million over the next four years. The Clean Hydrogen Electrolysis Program, which uh, uh, allocates a, a billion dollars for uh, electrolysis research, uh, 2022 to 2026. It also has something that the United States has not had that many other countries already do have, and we're behind the curve, which is a Clean Hydrogen Strategy and Roadmap. 
that mandates the development of one for the United States. So it has not been done yet, but many countries have already established, published, vetted, and uh, revised their clean hydrogen strategies and roadmaps. And the United States is one of those that has lacked there. And so this is a step in the right direction. It helps to know where you're going if you want to get it somewhere, right? So that's been a big addition to the, to the uh, arsenal here. And then it's also set standards for clean hydrogen production qualifications, which, you know, I think they have put into place clean hydrogen production standards that are ambitious. And I think it's good to be ambitious. And so I think we've uh, struck a, the right balance here of putting in place some funding and some incentive programs for investment in the infrastructure around hydrogen, as well as some ambitious goals that the private sector should be uh, gearing to gearing up, gearing up to meet. Yeah, sounds like there's a lot here in the immediate term. You know, I guess as you look out on the horizon, do you see or in your crystal ball of further things that might be required from a public policy perspective to advance the use of hydrogen in the overall energy mix? Yeah, uh, crystal ball gazing these days. <laughs> particularly at the federal level. Uh, not, not that I think I ever had the capacity to predict what the federal government would do, Jim, but I, uh, I don't know. It, it might be a little bit of a fool's errand these days, but let's, let's take what we have uh, in front of us. And, you know, I, I think the, the next big step, uh, of course, at least for the hydrogen world, depends on the, at the federal level, depends on the Build Back Better Act. Uh, which incorporates the hydrogen production tax credit or it's second 45 X. And that is a production tax credit that offers to hydrogen producers a, uh, a tiered tax credit that depends. So what level and what percentage of the full tax credit a producer can claim depends upon the CII score of the hydrogen they are producing in a taxable year. So it's done on a per kilogram of hydrogen produced basis, and it can go as high as $3 per kilogram of hydrogen produced at low CI score. So I think that's the next big, big ticket item on the federal agenda. Uh, it is part of the Build Back Better Act, so we'll see what its trajectory is. I think that's a great start. And I think what we are looking at in, as an industry, and certainly as a company, Biotech, what's important to us is that the PTC is a step in the right direction, and we think it's, it's progress. What it does not do is offer, you know, does not incentivize going carbon negative, which is, of course, for the hydrogen world, they, you know, there is, you can get to zero, that's great. We love that, we're, we're in favor of that. But if you can go carbon negative and legislators are serious about incentivizing the cleanest possible hydrogen supply and production methods, then, you know, that is the next step. And we think that's something that the bill lacks, but as a general trend, I think it's the next big thing, and we're watching it very closely. Yeah, that I, I put you on the spot there trying to predict what's going to happen in Washington with all that. But it's interesting to for our listeners to know some of the things that are in there specific towards hydrogen. I've also heard yeah, well, about... I'm, I'm delighted to prognosticate, Jim. I just uh, <laughs> I hope nobody's, uh, nobody's relying on my prognostications. Yeah, it isn't like... Uh... 
one where we come after and and score it, whether you're right or wrong, like they do with predicting football scores. We we just won't <laughs> do that here. We'll just we'll just let it go into that's, the ether. That's very kind of you, Jim. <laughs> so, Andrew, what what about the the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen Energy Earthshot Initiative? What's that about? Yeah, that was a that was a big announcement earlier this year from DOE. You know, it fits like you know, it, all of these things fit together. And DOE has has been uh, really making some big moves in the hydrogen space. And DOE has been very active, as one might imagine, over this past year. And the the Earthshot program. So it's interesting. Uh, the Earthshot program is you know ambitious energy goals set and programs set by DOE. And the very first shot program, Earthshot program, is the hydrogen shot which we were delighted to see that that was on the top of Secretary Granholm's list. And the idea behind the Earthshot program is to provide funding and uh, support for projects that DOE, uh, that drive towards the goal of making hydrogen available at $1 per, per kilogram by the end of this decade, so by 2030. That is an ambitious goal. And, you know, and when I say $1 per kilogram, I mean, clean hydrogen, and they're talking about hydrogen that is one kilogram of CO2 emitted per one kilogram of hydrogen produced. So that's quite quite a low CI score. It's ambitious, it's great, and we're, uh, we think uh, Earthshot is a, a fantastic uh, initiative, and it is, uh, I think it's one of the big programs that we'll be watching over the next decade. And hopefully, you know, Biotech will be participating. So they've done an RFI already, uh, they had a webinar earlier this week uh, where they rolled out and announced their hub site mapping tool. And uh, I think it's, it's going to be a big program for the United States. Well, that's a, a great look at some of the different things going on at the federal level here in the U.S. I, I hear your home state of New Mexico has some specific developments pertaining to hydrogen. What can you share with us about that? Yeah, we are proudly New Mexico headquartered company. We are even further delighted with and proud of our governor and her administration in New Mexico to uh, for their ambitious goals around hydrogen. And yeah, uh, to that end, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the governor, Lujan Grisham uh, in New Mexico announced that they would be publishing and sent around drafts of uh, the New Mexico Hydrogen Hub Act, which they hope to pass in this next legislative session early this uh, coming year. And that act, um, obviously it's going through the review process and may change in some ways. And but, but what we know today is that it offers a number of a number of really attractive incentives for investment and, and initiatives. And so amongst them is the calibrated qualification structure that promotes the reduction of the carbon intensity of hydrogen production over the next decade. New Mexico is a traditionally oil and gas state, so they want to leverage the existing resources of the state and the existing skill sets, their workforce. And that means that for them, some of the hydrogen produced in the near term will come from uh, natural gas resources, but it will clean up over time. And, and we, as a company can do our part to make that happen. So we're we're excited about that initiative. And it, over the next decade, the uh, the CI score and the carbon production 
in New Mexico in order to qualify for the incentives under the New Mexico Hydrogen Hub Act will have to meet lower and lower CI scores. And I, we think it's a, a really excellent approach to that uh, transition. Uh, as I mentioned just a second ago, the bill is designed to incentivize and leverage the existing workforce skill set in New Mexico, which you know, a lot of hydrogen production, the skill sets for workers in the field and doing the technical operations are similar and transferable from the oil and gas sector. Um, so, you know, the, the act is designed to be a, not just a job creator, but a job preserver, you know, can transition that workforce. And then there are investment tax credits for clean and qualified hydrogen facilities. And there's a series of attractive tax deductions associated with uh, the sale of hydrogen molecules and hydrogen fueled products and equipment, as well as for services provided in the construction and development of hydrogen generation facilities and hydrogen power generation facilities. So there's a number of different things included again in this bill. And uh, we think, and, you know, it's designed to be supplemental with the federal incentive programs and tax programs. So uh, we think uh, we think the governor has taken a really impressive approach and it really has some, set some very ambitious goals for, for her state. Yeah, and that's really neat that you're there centered where a lot of that action is going on. And I know many of the other states are, are doing different things, California being one of them. Can you just uh, give a thumbnail of some of the things that they're doing? Yeah, so last time we did a review of this, I think we numbered the full slew of bills that include, you know, maybe not hydrogen-focused bills, but bills that include hydrogen programs or hydrogen components in California that were either under consideration or, or enacted, somewhere around 56. So I think maybe we'll look at the, the one that, I, that most people probably associate with California and what makes it very attractive to the hydrogen industry, other than being the fifth largest economy in the world. That's obviously a good starting point. The low carbon uh, fuel standard is the primary program that is bringing, it, bringing in hydrogen investment in the, in the transportation sector in California. And essentially, the, uh, the low carbon fuel standard has been around for some time. I think it was enacted in 2009. We're around there. Its sole purpose is to drive down the DHG emissions for, from transportation fuels in California, uh, benchmarked against 2011 levels. The goal is to drive those down by 20% by 2030. And the way they do that is a credit and deficit system. So those companies or those producers that bring fuel into the California transportation fuel mix that are below the CI score set by the state each year. They generate credits. Those who bring in and sell fuels that are above that CI score generate deficits. And those companies or producers that have deficits to meet that CI score, you know, meet those goals by purchasing the credits from those who hold those producers that hold credits. So it's a little bit different way of looking at the system. It's not an incentive program as traditionally, you know, it's not something like, like a production tax credit. It is a market-based monetization system for these LCF credits. And it actually has some very attractive components and hydrogen producers 
we uh, we see it as one of the key legislative tools in the California toolbox. Yeah, and that whole transportation chain with the infrastructure required and and everything else that that seems like something to kind of push and prod it along. That's really good. Well, let's start wrapping up. And I guess it's another one of those crystal ball type questions about like, how do you see things unfolding over the next decade and Bayatech's role in driving that future that y'all see? Yeah, well, I appreciate uh, appreciate you guys giving me the time to uh, to ramble on about uh, about hydrogen and, and Bayotech. So, um, I think Bayotech's vision is, is, as I mentioned at the top, pretty clear. We want to make hydrogen affordable. Like I said, we have a focus on affordability, accessibility, and adaptability, and we want to make it available to our clients and our customers when and where they need it. I think Bayotech's role in that transition and we see hydrogen obviously the bigger picture we see hydrogen growing as a part of the energy mix dramatically over the next 10 years and our role in that is not only to make it accessible and to make it some, a fuel source that people rely upon uh, companies can use to drive down the uh, the emissions associated with fleets and operations it is also to make it affordable today to our our clients and we are we are doing that and we are doing that by bringing hydrogen to local production sites and we hope to scale that up very much so beyond just the united states over the next three years and starting with the uk and over time producing and putting hydrogen sites across the uh across the globe well we're really excited too that automation plays a role in this whole effort too that that's part of it well let's i always yeah. like to just kind of end it with an open-ended thing is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today maybe that i didn't ask you no i think i think we've covered quite a bit of ground jim and i will i will wrap up by saying absolutely you know that automation component um uh, where Emerson has, uh, you know, this, uh, this partnership with Biotech and Emerson that was recently announced has uh, been a, an incredible, uh, incredible partner to work with. And uh, to your point, we look at you know, Biotech. Our goal is to be able to automate and monitor our production systems anywhere in the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's a, that's a key part of our value proposition. Not only for us as an, uh, when we own and operate the sites, but for our customers who own uh, and operate sites that they've purchased from us, we can support them 24 hours a day. So having a, you know, a company like Emerson behind us to provide those systems and those services is uh, incredibly, incredibly important to us. So thank you to Emerson. Uh, and then I think the last thing I would, I would note is our, we recently announced our first hydrogen hub going into our hometown of New uh, Albuquerque uh, in partnership with the New Mexico Gas Company. And that was just last week that we made that announcement. And uh, we're absolutely uh, delighted to, uh, to be doing that. And I believe Emerson was there at the kickoff event along with the governor of New Mexico. So I appreciate uh, your guys' support. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. 
Well, Andrew, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you today, and I hope our listeners have learned as much as I did, not just on the technology, but on all these different policies and things going on that kind of move this along here. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate the time. It's, it's been a pleasure.